This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So I figured out a way to do hypertrophy. Okay. For me, for me. So my issue is always the fact that when I'm doing uh, strength work, it's about intensity and you know pushing and stuff like that. With hypertrophy, because it's effectively not, it's, it's a bit harder for me to do because obviously, like I said before, I have to get in the right mindset and mentality, you know, etc. So I found out a way to do it. Eight is power ballads. No one can lift heavy listening to Eight is power ballads. You try and lift to Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye, <laughs> heavy. You can't do it. So you have to lift light. See now, from my psychology background and my masters, I would say that there are a certain group of people who will thrive with Marvin oh, Gaye yeah. in the background <laughs> in terms of strength. Okay, that's not me. That'll be the jam. It's very personal. However, I'm glad it works for you. I mean, I was bicep curling to Ghostbusters, so <laughs> it was going well. Oh, that is quite hilarious. It, it worked, though. It did work. So have you heard of a, a lady called Belle Gibson? No. Okay. So I hadn't either. I watched a um, thing on the BBC iPlayer, which was a documentary about her. So she was an Instagram influencer from like the mid-2010s. And she's Australian, and she claimed to have had a brain tumour and had healed or had had lived with terminal cancer for five years. So she was a big advocate for, like, natural whole foods and, and alternative remedies and stuff like that. And she gained this sort of big following on Instagram as a result of this, a lot of people with serious medical conditions. And then I didn't watch the whole documentary, so I'm assuming at the end of this that it turns out that she's fraudulent because that's the way it's sort of angled. But... The bit that I found quite interesting was when they were talking about uh, she launched a food app and the food app was about what sort of foods you should eat. And as they were describing the foods and trying to make it sound like it was, you know, this really hard draconian style diet, I was listening to it and I'm thinking, that sounds like a pretty standard diet start point to me. So let me let me walk you through some of the things. All right, then. So no processed foods. That's a no-brainer. Right. Uh, no alcohol, no gluten. Okay. No dairy. Mm-hmm. Plant-based in, in, in the main, but not plant-based in, in the vegan style. Plant-based is in the majority of the food is fruits and vegetables. Right. Nuts and seeds, fish, white meat. So in the documentary, they're trying to make out with, with one of these people who followed this for a while. She's saying, I couldn't have this bottle of wine. And then she pulls out a pre-made carton of soup you know that Covent Garden soup and then she goes I can't have this either and then the interviewer goes well why can't you have that that seems pretty healthy to me and she goes because it's processed and I was thinking well of course it's processed it's a carton of soup you don't know how much salt's in there you don't know what else they've put in there you have no idea I mean it says on the back what's in it but you don't you don't really know the extras they put in there of course it's processed why can't you just make your own soup and I was thinking maybe I'm one of those people that's that's like too harsh on people is this a harsh diet to follow seeing i don't think it is all i'm asking people like all you're asking people to do is to make their own food you see the reason why in this day and age you sound harsh is because convenience yeah and this is what the I, fact I, that everything is so convenient people are less likely to do something like whoa cook your own meal or you know make your own sauce yeah things that Take an extra 20 minutes, but make all the difference in the long run when you look at your health. This is what I couldn't understand when I was watching, like, you know, don't get me wrong. The woman, if, if 
she's faked that she's got a brain tumour and, and all the rest Wait, of it. Wait, so what part do you think is fake? Because you haven't finished watching it. Well, I haven't brain finished... tumour... So, so what I think is, is that she faked the brain tumour and did it to raise um, interest around her. And then she's used that as a vehicle to launch her app, which is based on this food system, which is where she's making her money. So, have you heard of a doctor called Dr. Sebi? No. Okay, so I'm going to open up a rabbit hole right now. Okay, go for it. So, going back probably about 10, 15 years, probably a bit more listeners, it's a bit vague, it's been a while since I've read anything or, you know, read his book or thought about this guy, but he claimed to cure cancer and AIDS. Right. In America. A lot of the famous people like, um, people like Michael Jackson were known to have gone to see him. And what he said was was kind of similar to that, but he took it even deeper. So the key thing is, this is this is extreme for us. Mm. He said there's a list of fruit and veg. Yeah. Which, you know, is the original list. Then you've got all these other things that are hybrids. Okay. Now, only when you look into the fruit and veg, you realise a lot of the stuff we consume now actually didn't exist. It was made. Yeah. A lot of what he'd done was based on an alkaline diet. Okay. And saying that you needed stuff that had a positive and negative charge and bring that into the body. Right. Rather than having things which actually have no charge and add nothing to your body. So he said he would he stopped all meat. Right. Because yep. he said you're ultimately putting a dead thing into your body. I see. And everything was ba- based on plants and vegetables, but not the hybrids, the originals. Yeah. And it's funny because when you look up, when you read up on him and do all the research, it makes perfect sense. But it's so hard to follow. Nutrition is one of those areas that's that's ever expanding that they don't know too much about because there's there's a lot of stuff in this. So the the phrase "you are what you eat" is is quite significant, and I think people don't really appreciate that. They they eat foods and they consume, you know process things and, and stuff like that they don't really t- think too much about what they're what they're having because they're told that it's um healthy like for example low fat yogurts in order to make it low fat you have to replace the fat with something and they replace it with sugar so the low fat yogurt is allowed to be in the health file because effectively it's low fat and therefore under uk government regulations that means it's healthier than a full fat yogurt even though the full fat yogurt is natural yes yeah, a mess they do that all the time and then the sweetener has an issue as well because it causes problems for your gut as well as for your brain. For the purpose of health, I can understand why they, you know, you would become a vegan. But then there's one glaring fact which always comes back into my head. Everything they do with meat in terms of making it, all the drugs they put in it to make them bigger, stronger and harvest a, a better amount of meat of the animal, they do the same thing for crops. <laughs> Yeah. So if they do the same thing to get the most out of the produce for a crop as well as what they do for live cattle, then you're not actually making that much of a difference because it's still going to be a messed up fruit and veg you're eating. How many things do, do we end up eating out of season? Because yeah. they can make them all year round. They can create the environment. But however, on your cellular level, have they created the same nutritional value? Probably not. Yeah. It's quite funny because um, I talk to my wife about things like this all the time. And then she'll say, oh, yeah, I went for the healthy option. And then she'll pick up like um, a smoothie or something like that. And I look at her and think, or I say to her, what do you think is in that to stabilise it? <laughs> From it leaving 
the warehouse where they produced it to get into the store to get in your basket to get in home you actually don't know how long that's been yeah that could have been months like there's so many things that they have to put in everything that we buy to make it available to us in a certain period of time that you might as well just do it yourself i keep saying i'm becoming a farmer (laughs) i'm getting very close i I don't think becoming is the word i think you are now no no because i i haven't got to the part where i've got animals i'm gonna get animals (laughs) the chicken is on the way mentally in my head the chicken is already here listeners i eat a ridiculous amount of eggs I'm not going to go say that I'm some crazy bodybuilder that just eats them raw. But for me, when you think about like a breakfast choice, if you go away from the conventional thing that they want you to have, which is like a high level of carbs and sugar, and you go to an unconventional breakfast, I love an omelette. Yeah. I could eat an omelette most days. Yeah. I mean, I like scrambled eggs. I would I would do that most days. Over the last like decade or so they've been talking about they've always speak about cholesterol and how you know you shouldn't have too much eggs because it raises your cholesterol but there's a big difference between cholesterol in the body and dietary cholesterol one of the theories that's currently sort of out there on cholesterol actually is is basically that uh, the reason why you get such a high level of cholesterol in the body is because you're not getting enough cholesterol in your diet that's funny so the body has to make more of it so, um, yeah synthetically and therefore it's it's bad for you whereas if you increase the amount of good cholesterol going in you decrease the need for the body to produce it but that's the thing about you know the basic nutritional rules right now it's scary because as you said at the beginning we almost know nothing yeah it sounds like we do but we don't it's, it, we've really scratched the surface I mean one gram of protein is equivalent to four calories one gram of carbs is equivalent to four calories and one gram of fat is nine calories. And I think alcohol is seven. They don't actually think that might might be correct now. They think that might be wrong. They think protein might be three calories. But what's funny about that is how did it even come to that conclusion? If I remember correctly, they literally burnt food and timed how long it took to burn it completely to a char. And then based on the timings and the amount of fats and proteins they could extract from a thing, they worked out that that's... How, that's that's how long it takes because calories are a, an energy. So messed up. Yeah, and that, and that sounds so outdated. Well, yeah, because it's Victorian. <laughs> so the the last time these calorie numbers were checked was the Victorian era. So bear that in mind because also the other aspect is a lot of the books when they've got the calorie numbers and a lot of the apps are based on the books from the seventies. And if you look at the size of food portions in the seventies, you know they're a lot smaller. So if you take something like say. Uh, my fitness pal will have say one apple medium well how big is a medium apple no one knows right it turns out that the apples we're getting now as standard are large apples so if you think about it you're going to misjudge and we get into a minefield because you can roughly sort of figure out what calories you've got but unless you've got a little scale to measure all your food you're never going to know for some people having a set of scales is a good thing because they can actually they'll stay on a path and it will they'll be able to track everything quite well but there's a thin line between it being positive and then becoming negative because it comes obsessive. Yeah. And, and then get eating disorders which you don't really need. Which comes back to the same point of if you if you follow a, a diet whereby you're choosing to eat fish, white meats that are low fat and healthy, and then you're choosing to eat fruits and vegetables as a majority of your diet. So you've effectively gone low um, complex carbs, good fats and proteins you're unlikely to be able to overeat your calorie number. Yeah, that's true. Because and that's regardless of your metabolism. Yeah. 
Because have you seen how much broccoli you need to eat in order to get to like 300 grams of broccoli? <laughs> you mean 300 calories? 300 calories of broccoli. It's, it's like, I think it's like five bowls of broccoli. You're <laughs> never going to do it, ever. It's one of those things that, you know, you can, it's hard to get right and then maintain. You can have it perfect for like, let's say a month or two, but then always something always slips in because of the convenience. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, for us as well, because we're on the move, you get those days whereby you haven't got any food. So that's the thing about me that the hardest thing for me is not even being on the move. I don't like cold food. <laughs> so until they create cars with microwaves in. <laughs> you can get an attachment for the lighter thing, you know. What for microwave? Well, it can heat stuff up. I'm assuming you can attach it to a microwave. I don't know if it's got enough power. It might drain your battery. I'll be stuck here and never be able to move. But you've again. got some food with you. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I need I need hot food. So that's, that makes it even harder for me in terms of convenience. All right, today, today we're talking about a subject that's very special to a man next to his heart. I can already see him bouncing around in excitement. We're going to be talking about Olympic lifting. I was like, who's that person for a second? Is it <laughs> me? Oh, oh, yes, me. Yeah, it's you. It's you. Yes, yeah, me. I know, I know, I know. It's, um, Olympic lifting is one of those interesting topics where I think a lot of people know about it and are aware of it, but they don't necessarily know the mechanics of it. They don't know the, the, the ins and outs of it. And when, when you talk about it, people are sometimes surprised by what actually Olympic lifting is. That's because if you ask someone to picture Olympic lifting, they think about somebody really small trying to lift something five times their size off the ground. Yeah. And that's it. They think about living, lifting the heaviest weight humanly possible. They don't think about, you know, the stuff that once you get into Olympic lifting, you realise, like, the uh, explosiveness, the power of the movement, the technique needed to be in each position, and how, you know, that kind of relates to normal exercise. Because if you think about it, I don't want to go too deep too early. Yeah. But most of the major lifts that people use in the gym are breakdowns of Olympic lifting. Well, this, I mean, that's true. I mean, let's get into it. Let's get into it a little bit. So, what are the Olympic lifts? Okay, so you've got clean and jerk. Right. And then you've got snatch. They're the two main Olympic lifts. So, the first point there I'd, I'd, sort, of, I'd sort of pick out, which I think a lot of people are surprised by, is that the, there are only two Olympic lifts. There's no bench, there's no squat, there's no, no deadlift, which is, I think, where people get confused. But that's because... Isn't that more powerlifting? Well, they are the powerlifting lifts. Yep. But it's, it's, I think that's where people get confused, is they tend to look at it and go, well, I've seen competitions where people do these things. But it's a, it, as you said, it's a completely different sport. Totally different sport. So if we start by breaking down the difference between Olympic lifting and powerlifting, powerlifting is something where... It, it, they call it power, however, it's more... It should actually be called strength lifting. Yeah. Because it's not about... The, the definition of power will be to move something as quick as possible or as optimally as possible. Whereas power lifting in terms of the sport, doesn't matter how slowly you move the weight, it's being able to have the force to lift the weight off the ground from point A to point B. Yeah, I mean, technically, Olympic lifting is power lifting. Yeah. But, yeah, it's uh, it's a funny quirk. There is a, there is a reason, I can't remember what it is, to do with this. I think Olympic lifting obviously predates it. And then powerlifting was called powerlifting to differentiate. Mm-hmm. That's why you've got stuff like um, they've got the bench, but they don't have an overhead press in powerlifting. Yeah. But the more you know, the more you know about it, about exercising, the more you know about the main lifts. You think, why would you not have an overhead press? This is a different tangent, but I, th- yeah. I think the 
there is a reason for that is because the the overhead press that most people can do is so is not comparable to their squat and their their deadlift which means that when you're doing a competition you're looking at combined weight with the bench at least it gives you a number that that comparably matters because otherwise the difference between your squat and deadlift could be your olympic lift uh, your overhead press which means that it, it makes no difference in competition so the bench press is in there because it gives you i think about roughly most people's benches in in powerlifting is somewhere about a half to two thirds of their squat Mm -hmm. something like that so it means that it it gives you a competitive number that that makes a difference on 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 the on the total rather than like 80 kg yeah because 80 (laughs) kg is 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 still you know impressive that's an insane yeah overhead press but in 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 powerlifting elite levels it's nothing so it doesn't it doesn't carry over that's why i think they have the bench but anyway we've gone on a tangent let's go back to the olympic lift so you said there were two types there's the the snatch and the clean and the and the jerk so clean and jerk and snatch yeah so why is it in that order it's not even a particular order per se they can be done either way i think most of the times they do snatch first because you can't lift as much in the well you know unless elite level all the rules go out the window yeah but generally you can't lift as much in a snatch as you can in the clean and jerk so for the listener, break down, if you can, the two movements in, in simplistic terms, what what these movements look like so the listener kind of understands what they are. Cause okay, just given the so to visualise it best, think about in both positions, they start in a deadlift position. And with a snatch, <laughs> using the term literally, you're snatching the bar up as close to the body and going from the floor to overhead in yeah. one movement. So it's a single movement. Single movement. Right. And that's the, technically, it's the harder exercise because you've got a wider grip. In order to do that, you can't have a close grip. You need to have a wide grip to pull it from the floor all the way to above your head. Right. Which means you've got a lot of elements involved there, which I'll get into later. I could break it down for days. Well, we'll be asking some questions, but yeah, don't worry about that. And then you've got the clean and jerk, which is two movements put together. Right. So the clean is where you go from the floor and you put it into a front squat racked racked position. At, At sort of chest neck height sort of level. Yeah. Well, you say chest neck, but you can't really rack it at your forehead. No, well, you, some, <laughs> someone might. It's on the shoulder, elbows up, in a front squat, the yeah. way you technically always teach a front squat. And then from there, you're doing a slight bounce and either opening up the feet or splitting the feet, hence the jerk, to get the weight from your shoulders above your head. So, And, and that's why you would say, typically for, for the vast majority of people, the clean and jerk is is the the movement that you're going to have more more strength in because or able to lift more weight let's say because that action is two movements you only have to go halfway for one and in the second half for the other whereas with the snatch you have to take the entire weight from the ground to overhead in one movement yes but then that plus just the complexity of having that much distance to cover and get correct in every point because you know for the listeners and for the trainers out there in, when you're doing something like a squat, everyone knows about the hole. That's where you're stuck at the bottom. Yeah. And you need to grind back out of that. If you're in a front squat position and you're in the hole, that's tough. But an overhead squat, even getting yourself into the hole, is an absolute nightmare. Yeah. And getting out of that without your shoulders buckling or anything like that, feet up to upper back being perfect, is even harder. You do it quickly... But once you're stuck at the bottom because you can't lift the bar that high, you need to get out of that hole. And that's the tough bit with the snatch. 
Because technically you have to have so many things perfect to get the snatch right. But well, you don't need that for clean. Yeah, so the clean the clean is more forgiving. That's it. Whereas the snatch is more technically... Well, they're, they're both technically challenging. But, but the snatch is more technically challenging. Yeah. And so this is this is exactly... Um, and to the listener, if, if you if you actually take your time and, and go away and look at some people in the in the bottom position of a snatch, it's quite incredible to see how they're positioning, how technically perfect their positioning actually is. I mean, you think about how much weight they have overhead. Yeah, that's that's the thing. So, would you would you say that people have to be strong first before they start Olympic lifting? No, not really. The reason why I bring this up is because it's a common misconception that a lot of people have, is that first thing they get good at is they get proficient at the lifts, they get strong at the lifts, and then it's something that they come to four or five years down the line that they might look at. It doesn't matter what level of strength you are or how strong you feel like you are in the movements, you still need to get the timing and the technique of a clean and jerk, let's say. So you, there's no point saying break down the movements when you could just do all of them anyway and put it in one. So... One of the things that um, I experienced when I was really young in university is, you know, when you're doing competitive sport, you always do S&C. Yeah. So the classic thing in S&C... S&C is strength and conditioning. Strength and conditioning is the classic thing you always do is you always start with a wooden stick, which is called a dowel, mm-hmm. and you do the Olympic lifts. So this, is, so this is the interesting thing is because it's when, when you're learning the Olympic lifts, the value of the technique is so, so important. And I think this is this is often what's forgotten in the weight room, is when you see people come in and train, they, you know, they want to look good or they want to get stronger or they want to get fitter or whatever it is, and they completely forget about technique, and so they they work around it. So one of the things you you tend to see is someone does a say a back squat, they've got the bar on their back and it's it's sitting really high on the, sort of on their neck, their hands aren't evenly gripping the bar, and they go to like you know this quarter squat position and come back up. And then that's what they're calling a squat. Or you see someone do like a bench press and the bar doesn't even touch the chest. You can't do that with Olympic lifts. You can't get away with that. I mean, you can clean and you can sort of not get into the hole. But at some point, you you not getting into the hole means that you're not going to be able to lift anymore. You're just going to stop or you're just going to collapse. But that's why, you know, contrary to what everyone talks about, everyone thinks, Olympic lifting, I think, is key for everybody. Because it teaches you the subtle differences and subtle key points that you need to keep in mind for any lift. Like when you go up to the bar ready to do a clean, your feet are always in the same position. You turn them out to the same degree. You have your hands in exactly the same position on the bar. You lock in your upper back and kind of screw yourself into the bar in the same way every single time. And if you take those principles out of a clean and put it back into a front squat and a back squat... It means that no matter what weight you're, you have, you'll always be technically sound. Yeah. Because they're the key things. It's those little points that are so much more important because once you start the movement, you're doing it at such a speed that you can't have those little issues. This is, this is where I think it's, it, there's a huge value for people to go through a phase where they were looking at high technique, high strength work. Once they've got a level of conditioning into their training and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be an olympic lift to start with you could do something a little bit more forgiving like say a a squat or a deadlift where you're learning that every single micro point matters where the bar is where your hands are how screwed in you are what your mentality is like where your head position is all of that stuff makes a difference and then when you get that right 
the difference can be 10 15 20 kilos more that you can lift and it just makes a difference to understanding because once you've done that then putting that into something that's a power movement like a snatch or a, or a clean you you see how much that makes a difference it's the difference between lifting it and not lifting it and rich one of the funny things about olympic lifting is when you see a lot of the athletes doing olympic lifting they actually never lift that heavy no because it, it's not it's not about the weight it's about the expression and the speed of the movement so like you can do olympic lifting for the fact that you're going to become more explosive you're going to have a stronger position in all of the other the common lifts and you can do that by, by not even going past like 20 kg on each side so 60 kg in total and that's i'm talking for men yeah. So there's a lot of adaptations you can get from really light weights with Olympic lifting rather than seeing Olympic lifting as this thing where you need to put a ridiculous amount of weight on the bar and try to struggle underneath it. Because it's an expression of power, right? That's it. So we've we've touched on we've touched on power, we've touched on powerlifting, but what what actually is power? So power is the ability to move any given weight at speed. Now, it, I wouldn't say just speed, I'd say optimal speed. So, okay. like, let's say, let's say you're doing the jerk part of the movement. There's going to be a point where, if you go any heavier than that, you're not more powerful. You're less powerful. Right. So it's about bar speed as much as it is about moving moving the bar. Yeah. So like, you'll get to that point. Let's say 50 kgs is your optimal power at this stage. Right. Without training, you go 55. Not as quick. To make someone more powerful, you take someone who whose optimal speed is at 50 kg, train them and get them up to the optimal speed being at 70 kg. So this is where the value of technique becomes becomes crucial because in order for you to move that bar rapidly, not only do you need power, but you need good solid technique underpinning that. Otherwise, when you try and move the bar rapidly, you're going to be compromised, you're not going to be able to do so, or you're going to get hurt. That's one of the issues you have with people who have been going to the gym for a long time is... They don't understand, unless they've done a lot of the basic movements. And when I say basic movements, I mean a lot of Olympic lifting is down to hip movement. Yeah. Hip hinging and explosive hip movement up to be able to create the force to get the bar up without using your arms. Well, this is a separate conversation because there's, that you, you find that there's a lot of um, people with poor hip movement in general. And I think that's because of too much sitting and, and lack of lack of movement. And also, I've, I would actually blame some level of running as well, but that's a separate separate conversation for another day. But that you're you're right. That hip hinge, that hip action, is what's crucial to creating the the drive. Um, we're going to the realms of like um, technical breakdown now, but it's one of the aspects of that triple extension. That's it. Perfect. That's a term that they use all the time. And the thing is, that's why Olympic lifting is amazing. But there's certain areas you shouldn't really put Olympic lifting in. So, you know, when you see people create programs and they like say, OK, I'm going to put someone on the cross trainer or the treadmill or the rowing machine for like half an hour. And then I'm going to go into Olympic lifting with them. That's the type of things you would never do because yeah. you've got to think about it. Because of all the small muscles you use, you want the power aspect should be the key. It will be power, Olympic lifting first, and then you'd move on to the smaller things which take less technical aspect because there's nothing more technical than Olympic lifting yeah so you do you, you do the breakdown but this is this is where I think you have to blame CrossFit because CrossFit has put Olympic lifting in the middle of workouts and it's made it 
um, something that needs to be ripped out and, and, and pushed in that direction. And they've done that. I understand that in order for them to give it a unique sort of selling point in that there's Olympic lifts in it, but I mean, we can, we can talk about CrossFit all day. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be a podcast on that at some point, I'm sure, but it's the way that they've trivialized Olympic lifting and, and just placed it in programs willy nilly. Yeah. Where it should never be. And then because of what you said with the CrossFit situation, you get the issues in the major joints and for Olympic lifting, the major joints, you should always worry about the knees and the shoulders. They're under the most force. Yeah, and they're, they're stabiliser joints. That's it. And this brings us into, quite neatly, I think, stability and mobility and its role in, in Olympic lifting because I think what puts a lot of people off is when they watch it um, or when they see someone perform it and they perform it well, it looks graceful, effortless, and you're looking at someone who's able to handle an immense amount of weight um, and maintain perfect positioning. And when a lot of people look at that, they go, I can't do that. I'm I'm not strong enough and I'm not mobile enough effectively to get into those positions. But I mean you you said right at the beginning you believe Olympic lifting is for everyone, right? Yes. I just think you need to work on a certain So one of the key things you'd always do when someone comes in the gym or I would always do is you got the assessment. One of the key things I always used to add into an assessment is overhead squat. Yeah. Because that tells you so much about a person from head to toe. Yeah. And then what you do from there is you would go through mobility. I know you're a big fan of mobility. Yeah, I spend my life doing mobility. So the key thing about mobility for the listeners out there, but which the trainers probably know already, is day-to-day that changes so much. Your ankle flexion or, dor- or dorsiflexion can be really good one day, two days later be horrible. Yeah. But by having a regular mobility routine in a workout, it's almost like a, it's almost like a system check. So following a routine of mobility every session you're able to see what things are consistently tight in you what things are starting to loosen up and you can actually always prepare yourself for the workout and be as supple as possible so if you do that in terms of an overhead squat the one thing everyone looks at or we look at is ankle and calf tightness if you loosen up your calves and you're able to get that rotation in the foot then that means doing an overhead squat is maybe like 20% easier because you can bend your knees in the right position your hips will go where they need to be and then the other key things you have to worry about which are still big issues but is the back position and the overhead bar position but for overhead squat ankle mobility is key and then if you think about it if you go out of an overhead squat for more normal people in the gym ankle mobility for a normal squat and even more for a front squat these are all areas where you could add, if you're looking for, you know, if you're chasing numbers, you could add 10, 15 kg on your squat just by getting ankle mobility. Yeah. And what, what's funny is if you want to know whether someone's got a good mobility program and assessment, the way they, the way they do their assessment, the way they then follow up with, with their mobility process and their, their stability process will be almost like you're in a session. Those exercises will be consistent constant and they'll they'll drive you towards towards that goal of getting more range getting more positioning yeah i would agree and then as you develop those exercises will will become more advanced they'll be more challenging you'll even maybe even break a serious sweat while you're doing a mobility section the harder the actual workout the more intense the mobility has to be so let's let's talk through a theoretical individual let's say we've got someone and we've determined that they've got a um, 
lack of range in their ankles. Let's say they've also got a weaker core position and they've got um, some level of, um, uh, let's call it lazy hips if you want, or lazy glutes. Right, so their glutes, uh, their hips don't move properly through through pressing through. Their ankles are a little bit tight, and their core's a little bit on the weaker side. Um, we've also determined that we're going to do some level of Olympic lifting with them. What does that look like for that individual? Because I think what everyone's assuming here is that Lawrence is going to get that person put 10, 10 kilos on each side of the bar and then say, snatch. Whereas I know that's not what you're talking about doing. Richard, you make me want to get my pen and paper out and draw up a proper program in five minutes. You made me <laughs> do it. So, okay. Going off the top of the head from what you what you said, you've got the ankle issue, you've got the hip stability, you've got the core instability. Yeah. So you would make them do stuff. So a front squat is always really is a is an amazing thing for core stability and ankle stability once you've done a mobility. So in, in terms of our programming, we're doing we're doing mobility. Yep. We're trying to, and that mobility is going to look at. We've we've already sort of touched on it. Something around the ankle, yep. calf. Are we looking at mobility for the hips? It depends because you're saying that it's a lack of stability in the hips. I'm, I'm saying they've got both problems. They've got uh, la- now you're la- just making it harder. Lazy glutes, but also tight hips. There, and there was no mention of glutes before. No, they're, I they're think you're just adding it on now. We've we've only discovered them after the assessment. <laughs> Oh, thank you, thank you. Our assessment didn't find it. <laughs> so then you would do something to open up the hips along the way as a form of mobility. But before you add anything extra <laughs> to their gonna, list... That's it, that's it. My key thing would be to put them in positions where they need to learn how to hip thrust properly and stabilise at the top of the hip thrust. Because if you okay. can stabilise at the top there, then you know that your glute activation is really good. So... Wh- what that would look like a hip bridge from the floor the bar would be across your midsection by your um by the hip bones at the front of your body uh and then from there you'd hold onto the bar and use your hips or use your posterior chain to thrust up so would the you, weight off the floor would you do that and then potentially look at something say like a progression to an rdl or would you go straight into something like a kettlebell swing from that point I'll go into RDL because the problem with a kettlebell is I I am like when it comes to kettlebell swinging the <laughs> technique the technique for me is just insane I, like it has to be so technical I haven't seen since we worked together about eight years ago I haven't seen many people kettlebell swing properly well I know why you don't you don't see a lot of kettlebell swings uh, there, there was an incident but <laughs> it's not about the incident <laughs> But there was there was an incident. I think I think that's for yeah a that's, Friday. That's, that's for a Friday one. Yeah. But um, going back to the point, so you wouldn't bring the swing in at that point because of the technical level required. I just think it takes them away. If you want to do the kettlebell swing properly, it takes them away from what you're trying to do. So for you with the kettlebell swing, would you say it's a step before trying to learn, say, an Olympic lift with with a loaded Olympic lift? Or would you say it's something that you do alongside of it as a as a uh, complement? Yeah, complementary move. Yeah, it'd be complementary, but it wouldn't be part of the. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be an exercise I put in to fix the issues you've spoke about. Okay, I that's would just say it'd be ex- like you could put it in on an endurance day or something for fun. But then, because you got to think about it, with the, um, cut me off if I go off on too much of a tangent. Okay, G- give me like fifteen seconds. <laughs> you ready? 
Yeah. With the kettlebell swing, one of the key things you need to worry about isn't even the swing, it's the hand position. Then you've got to get them to remember to tighten their grip at the top of the movement, but loosen their grip as they're coming back down. Then you've got to also get them to make sure that each time they do it, their forearm marries the inside of their thigh. Like these are things that don't really help with Olympic lifting, but make your kettlebell swing certified. Right. I'm so, again. coming back to our chap, right, or, or lady. I, I've it, already picked it was a lady. Okay, so yeah. it's a lady. Fine. A lady. So coming back to our lady, she's got, um, uh, with the ankles, we've worked on some mobility around that. Yep. We've worked on some hip mobility. And then we've we've put something in to reinforce that glute movement, which is a hip um, a bar hip raise, hip bridge. Uh, and then then we, we done a fr- then I said the front squat. So the front squat. How does how does the front squat come in and benefit us in this scenario? Because if you think about a front squat and a back squat, a back squat technically you can lift more weight in. However, you can deviate and not need to yeah. use the dorsiflexion. However, in a front squat, there's no way. With this, where the where the center of mass is in your body and the way you you have to squat down, there's no way you don't use dorsiflexion. Yeah. So if you want to get to that perfect like seat position between you know your bum and your ankles, you have to dorsiflex properly. So it's one of those things where like in the industry sometimes you talk about how the weight helps you get into that position. Yeah. You do the mobility, then the weight forces the extra range. So that would be a key one. Or you could go to an elevated split squat. Like a Bulgarian split squat? No. Because a Bulgarian split squat, you go straight down and if you do it to a certain level, your knee and ankle stay in the same line. Right, okay. We're talking about an elevated split squat whereby your centre of mass doesn't go up and down. It goes diagonally forward and down. Right, so you're, back you're, up. you're forcing the range through. Yes, through so you're pushing into the dorsiflexion and driving back out. Okay. But the problem with that is, that's good. And, you know, you would do that as like an off-day thing or a secondary thing because, you know, that's single leg. But we always want to bring it back to double leg, bilateral, because that's what the movement is going to be. And then with the, with the core? Front squat, we'll do an amazing job on that. But then also you've got... Anti-rotation? Anti-rotation, I'll think more extension. Okay. Stability and extension. So we're looking at something like, say... Hollow hold. Yeah. Um, you could do a normal plank or anything like that, or something on a Swiss ball. But you know what? In saying that, I'm just being pedantic with that because, honestly, all four. I know some, some of the listeners who haven't heard the other podcasts we've done, you could, you've got the stability, you've got the extension, mm-hmm. you've got that rotation and the anti-rotation. Yeah. All four applicable to this movement because you can move in all those realms what I was going to suggest was some sort of pal-off press where, the, where um, you're holding the rope and then you press up because of the difficulty of that that would be like stage 2 stage well, 3 this, this is the thing So that's it but yeah it, it's, it's all doable but I would say all four aspects of that mixing it in with the other movements trying to keep the you want the upper back to be strong. Yeah. So you do stability exercises for that, but that wasn't on the main list. Well, no, this this theoretical woman has got a back of steel. Yeah. So that wouldn't that wasn't on the list. So it'd just be things around hip extension, single leg RDL or double leg RDL, depending on you know what level she's at. Um, you could do like light box jumps, but but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be about the jump. It would be about what is it called like the ready position. So the plyometrical based stuff. Ballistic. 
ballistic, that's the word there, that's a nice word. So the reason why it's ballistic, not plyometric, is because it doesn't fit into the category and doesn't have the three phases of an, an explosive, powerful movement. Right. And the key phase, which is that contact time and the pause at the bottom when you contact, which I can't remember the term for. Do you remember the name for that phase? The amortisation phase. Yes. So that phase has to be minimal. I can't remember the exact timing, but once it's over, like... It's, we're talking it's tenths. a fraction of a second. Yeah, right? like that tenths of a second. Once it's over that, it's ballistic. It's not plyometric. Anymore. So it's, it, it's, it's effectively the contact time on the ground. Right? Yes. Which, if, if you think of someone doing, say, skipping, it's how long they're on the ground for. So the faster the rope moves could move you from um, ballistic to plyometric, effectively. Yes, but then the reason why it wouldn't be classed as plyometric per se is because of the volume. Yes, but effectively, what I'm talking about is is from, is, is not an exact. It, yeah, it's but it, the, it's, the understanding for the listener. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that right. makes sense. We've covered that individual a little bit in terms of programming. Now, would you put that program as their kind of warm up before they go into a, into an Olympic lift phase, or would you do that as a separate thing with that individual? These things would be added in around everything else I wanted to work on to get them ready for the next phase. Where instead of having these derivatives of olympic lifting i would use the olympic lifts in their place and keep the other stuff in anyway because the other stuff is for their goals for trainers listening when people when we're talking about using olympic lifting as part of part of a process it's not necessarily that it's going to be detrimental towards say like their goal if their goal is aesthetics they want to look better right that olympic lift that that enables them to understand bar mechanics technical importance of, of movement and how it all links together and that when you when you come back to doing stuff like ten, um, time of detention or um, hypertrophy phases makes a big difference because that person knows how to push and push through their maximums and also the energy expenditure yeah on an um, Olympic lifting program is insane so we've, we've kind of talked about how Olympic lifting can be for everyone but are there people who are unsuited to Olympic lifting Funny enough, Richard, not many people at all. You're going to have some people who have like major knee issues and major shoulder issues, but without saying it, they're out anyway. We're, we're saying that there are going to be some people who say like chronic knee issues or stuff like that. Would you, would you put in people who are, um, they're sort of fatigued, they've got overtraining? Would you, would you put those people in as unsuited? Yeah, but that's not... That's something that can be fixed in maybe like two, three weeks because overtraining, overreaching takes about two weeks to a month. I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that they're too old to do something. And I think we're, we're sort of saying there's age isn't a barrier here. It no. isn't for most things, but it's not a barrier here. And equally, there probably is a cut-off point in terms of age in the other direction in terms of you can be too young. But at yes. the same time, with something, say, like a dowel, there's no detrimental impact of you learning the movement at, say three or four years old i mean we've we've seen there are individuals who who have done that with their children there's so many other things a kid could do theoretically if, if they're interested in learning the movement there's nothing wrong with them necessarily learning it as long as it's not the only thing they're doing True. at that age um and obviously we talk about the currently injured when we're talking about other things like disability so that someone's missing an arm or something right those people they're, they're not locked out from this either no because if we take away the traditional thing of using a barbell, you can do a lot of Olympic lifting with a kettlebell. So there's a famous 
trainer in America, um, European trainer who trained a lot of NBA players and I think I've done a lot of other sports too. And he created a system of Olympic lifting with dumbbells, yeah, not a barbell. Yeah, I think I know who you mean. So the problem with stuff like that is it's still applicable, but it isn't really Olympic lifting anymore. Well, it's a derivative of it. but Yeah, because it's more about... Because you don't have... With a dumbbell, you're going to have to get to a really significant weight to even get that power adaptation or application to then get adaptation. But this is this is where a derivative of a movement like Olympic lifting becomes valuable in itself because of what it's offering. But that's why stuff like um, for someone who... For some with a person, guy with no arm or with one arm, a no jerk, arms, he's probably no arm, <laughs> a jerk would be perfect. Yeah, because you could do it with a dumbbell, but you do it at a weight where he has to apply enough power to get the adaptations after, and you just get him to split his feet, which means that everything in his body is having to respond as if he had a barbell. Yeah, because of the weight. Yeah, and it's it. What it, what it also does for that individual is unlike other movements, which you could do, say, strength work with that person, right? Yeah. But there's there's an issue around that because let's say you're doing... Uh, they've got one arm. So let's say they're, they're doing, like, a strength work where they're doing some chest bench press, well, dumbbell chest press and dumbbell rows. You can only work one side at that maximum weight because when you come to the other side where you have not no arm, regardless of how long that arm is as a lever limits your ability to to build on that side and you can't get any barbell work in so you can't replicate a whole cross chain body action that easily this takes me back to the olden days because i just had an amazing thought in my head yes so the strength work would be harder to do because the core balancing wouldn't be there yeah on the opposite side however what you'd have to do then you'd have to create a program whereby Whatever you do on the right-hand side causing um, stability on the left-hand side, you would have to create a core workout to comp- to combat that on the opposite chain. This is a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go off another tangent. Right, so we'll, we'll, leave that, we'll leave that alone. However... Wait, add that to the list. Training program for one-armed man. See, now my worry is, is what you're going to go and do is cut a man's arm off to see <laughs> no. what way to do this. I'm, not, I'm definitely not cutting mine off. But there's a lot of issues between sides that you need to think about. So, but going back to what we're saying, there's not many people who aren't suited for this, even older people. Because, you know, the, the key thing is even if you start with a start with just a stick, there's a lot of gains you can get. With Olympic lifting, if you're brand new to it, you're going to get so much adaptations before you even put any weight, any significant weight on the bar that it's beneficial anyway. Yeah, because you're you're learning how the technique carries together, how the um, neurological system fires in and, and etc. And all of those things would help you be stronger in another discipline of training. Exactly. So it has it has huge benefits and carries out. Basically what we're saying is is that it's, it's something that ideally should be at some point in everyone's programme yes. with certain very small individual groups who, who shouldn't necessarily be doing it who have long-standing injuries or other issues that, that might sort of stop them. So as a quick side point on this, where do you stand in terms of equipment? Because obviously everyone uses lifting shoes when they do Olympic lifting. Are you a proponent for saying that 
when you do that you should you should have effectively a limp lifting shoes or would you say that for some individuals that you're working with where it might say be a phase of your training and it's something that you're learning for an explosive reasons it's not necessary to have like li- lifting shoes well it's funny you say that because ultimately olympic lifting shoes but if you're only doing it as like a really small percentage of the program i've seen some of my good friends who've done 12 week programs in converses <laughs> you just need a solid flat shoe yeah it doesn't really need to be an olympic lifting shoe you know with the, diff- with the olympic lifting shoe you get that slight arch or slight um heel which means you dorsiflex a bit more yeah but other than that it's just the fact that it's really solid at the bo- bottom and there's no shifting from left to right there's because of the the thick leather leather in the shoe there's no movement of your foot around it just stays it sticks well this is where i was driving at because i mean i know you've got you've got lifting shoes but then you are what i would describe as someone who's very into olympic lifting yep whereas i've done olympic lifting for periods and i don't have those shoes because for me it's not a big enough area for my training that I'm going to have and, and, and utilise them yeah, in that sense. Makes sense. But yeah, honestly, I've seen people do it in Converse's quite well. Okay, so when we're talking about trainers, from a trainer perspective, there's a last sort of area we're going to touch on, I think, on this. When we're talking about trainers, is Olympic lifting something that um, everyone should have a knowledge of? Yes, I think so. Because in order to really be good at the, let's say, the compound movements, the so back squat, front squat, um, RDLs, I wouldn't say bench, um, like overhead press, deadlift. You need to have some understanding of how it's best applied. If you know how at an Olympic level they would train and work on a deadlift, then you can filter that back down to how you do it with a normal person in terms of like stuff like micro-loading, yeah. how to lock themselves in underneath the bar. If they can't lock themselves in underneath the bar, why? Well, I think this this is again another another criticism of the coaching process and, and the, the qualification process in terms of PTs because quite often you'll see PTs who've gone through you know a six week course, a year course, a two year course and they come out and they understand some of some areas but they really don't understand how to coach someone effectively when when it is that you should just stick with where you are, when it is you should be pushing someone forward, what are the signs of, of improvement and I think when you look at something like Olympic lifting because you're looking at something that's happening so quick that there's a high chance of someone getting injured which means that if you don't have a really solid basis and understanding of it you know you're going to be in trouble and I think I think most coaches know that that's why they veer away from it so you hit the nail on the head the margin of error in programming and getting the weight right with Olympic lifting is so much smaller so if you're good at that than a normal person you'll be amazing because you're already so keyed in and clued into exactly what needs to be done to make sure they stay safe. Yeah. At the highest level. And then equally as well, and we're both in the UK, so it's a bit different, but in terms of most gyms you go into, most gyms aren't set up for Olympic lifting. No. Hardly hardly any of them have platforms. And then you've also got, if they do have a platform, what space do they have around that platform? Is it <laughs> is it a safe environment? Yep, because most of the platforms are just about large enough to put the bar on. <laughs> so, and you know, you can't really step too far back. So if there's any variation of shaking of the bar, you drop the bar. You know when you drop the bar from even like hip height, it's going to bounce left or right at least yeah. four times. So yeah, someone's always going to get hit. What what I find funny as well is, is you see in a lot of gyms, you've got this 
platform and the platform set up and the squat rack is on the platform because of the way that it's designed so then if someone's squatting you can't you can't olympic lift there right that's out that's out the question and then if you're trying to olympic lift that's the process that takes a while yeah you need you need that platform for at least 30 40 minutes even longer if we're going into strength and you're doing like between one and five reps You've got like six sets. You need to rest for at least three minutes after each set. Yeah, it's just a nightmare. So, I mean, you're going to be there for a long time. To summarize everything, um, we're saying that everyone can do these. They're important movements that people should at least at some point have touched on in their training process. I would agree. And we're saying that um, understanding them has a carryover and benefit for. A whole range of, of training, probably, as we've said, sort of every sort of area. Um, from a trainer perspective, one of the issues is, is comes down to coaching and, and understanding how to how to do the movement. And in another area that comes in is is obviously what environment you're in when you try and coach that. So there's obviously there's some limitations there. So what what advice would you give to coaches wanting to learn a little bit more about Olympic lifting? Understand how the compound lifts that we use in the gym build back up into an Olympic lift. Would you would you recommend they go and find a course on it or would you recommend they go and find someone who's actually done it and spend some time with them, working with them or paying? Either or them? both, really, because you can do a course on it, but doing a course on Olympic lifting, unless you've gone through at least one or two periodizations yourself, you don't understand a lot of the things like the toll it takes on the nervous system. Um, the loading process how many warm up sets you need to do before you get to like your working weight these are all things that in a normal gym you don't really think about working weights but unless you do the Olympic lifting yourself for a period of time you don't factor them in and then when we're talking about space and location one of the things that I would sort of tell trainers to think about doing is if it is something that you want to bring in and we've kind of hopefully convinced you that it should be is going to speak to whoever's in charge of the gym space about how that gym space can be practically arranged so you can actually do some Olympic lifting in there and finding a means that means that the culture in the gym will allow you to do that because it's one thing to get an okay from management to to have a space to do Olympic lifting where they feel it's acceptable for bars to bounce around and, and etc. We well, can use mats to stop it bouncing yeah. around as much. But... It's another thing when some idiot decides they're going to come and do a bicep curl right in front of where you're trying to do a snatch. <laughs> or the minute you're about to start the movement someone walks into the zone which means that by the time you pull it up to even your hips you're going to knock their chin off yeah thanks for listening and we'll be back next week